Hello and welcome. You're listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. Hello and welcome to episode 397 of Writers Aloud. In this episode, in Three Little Things, the writer Michael Bond and our host Julia Copus speak about three objects that have a special significance in Michael's writing life, and Michael passes on three of his top writing tips. Welcome to another episode of the Writers Aloud Three Little Things podcast series from the Royal Literary Fund, in which we talk with writers about their work and writing life through the medium of three objects that have particular significance for them. We also ask our guests to offer up three pieces of advice that might be a help to you in your own writing journey. Today's guest is science writer Michael Bond. Michael began his career as a science journalist and for six years was senior editor at The New Scientist. He writes about human psychology and behaviour and is particularly interested in the many ways in which we're influenced by our social and physical surroundings, how the people that we're with and the places we know affect what we do and think. Among his publications are The Power of Others, which won the 2015 British Psychological Society Book of the Year Award. The book we'll be discussing today is the fascinating Wayfinding, the art and science of how we find and lose our way. Published by Picador in the UK and by Harvard University Press in the States under a different title, From Here to There. The book explores the processes of human navigation, how our brains make the cognitive maps that keep us orientated and how, in turn, our interactions with landscape affect both our memory and cognition. Michael lives in a cottage on a farm in Hampshire with a cat called Cecil. So how are you and Cecil doing today? Well, it's a very quiet day in the cottage and Cecil has spent the last half an hour on my lap, which is which is actually not very helpful as a writer. But, <laughs> but he's he's gone off somewhere now, so uh, he may be back. He probably will be. Yeah, we we have had uh, cat appearances in previous podcasts, so. Uh, ah, well, it's quite difficult to get him to to vocalise. So oh, is it? He'll be a silent presence. <laughs> Even better. Now, Michael, one of the reasons that I was so keen to talk to you is that I think of myself as someone with quite a poor sense of direction. I do think it's improved a bit. But I remember some years ago, and I was trying to think this morning when it was, I think it was around uh, the year 2000s or early 2000s, a TV programme where they tried to find the best orienteer uh, out of a fairly random group of uh, 10 members of the public or something like that Mm -hmm. and I remember that it was won by a woman who had been sort of teased by her family and friends for having such a a rubbish sense of direction so I was just wondering whether you feel that uh, that self-assessment of our own sense of direction is always reliable. I think self-assessment does seem to be reliable because you sort of learn through life whether you're good at finding your way 
or, or, mm-hmm. or bad at it. And so if you ask someone whether they think they're good or bad, their answer probably reflects their ability. But the other thing to remember is that these things are not set in early life necessarily. Mm-hmm. And it is possible to improve and, and your experience growing up and as an adult and where you live and things like that, they do affect it. So if, if you've been told you're not much good, don't lose hope, it would be my advice. Yeah, I, I, I don't think they asked this woman how she felt about her own sense of direction. It was just that she said she had a reputation, so maybe she kind of played up to it or something, I don't know. But um, yeah. anyway, um, your passion for this subject comes across very strongly in the book. And you just said something there about um, early life. And you talk about how we learn to navigate as children. And part of the way that we do that is by this kind of aimless wandering about and exploring and and not being afraid to take wrong turns and, and so on. So, well, first of all, I suppose many parents nowadays are less comfortable about allowing their children to wander about in that way than perhaps in, in previous generations they were. But my specific question is, how do you think the, the pandemic might have affected uh, this sort of learning for young children? Well, the, the, the one uh, reason over the last 30 years that children haven't been allowed to roam as freely is, is traffic. Uh, and yeah. parents are just understandably reluctant to allow their children to wander around where there are cars. But during the, the lockdown, early lockdown stage of the pandemic, there wasn't so much traffic. So potentially yeah. children would have had an opportunity to, to, to wander and to sort of roam more freely. I don't know, yeah. don't know whether that, that happened. Um, of course, it depends on, on, on where you live. If, you're, if there isn't anywhere to roam or if you, if you live uh, in an apartment block on, on the sixth floor and it's difficult to, to get out, then that yeah. being confined, you know, people are not very good at being confined. So uh, it, it can have a, a poor effect yeah. on your mental health. So it might, it might have worked both ways. Yeah, and I suppose there were stages, weren't there, where there were those stages when all the animals came out of the hillside and uh, started roaming around the, the streets. Um, that's when we were locked into our own houses. And then there were stages when we were, you know, we were allowed out for our daily constitutionals. Yes. Um, so so I guess it would have changed um, over the course of the pandemic as well. I suppose the middle... The middle period there, when we when we were allowed out, but the, the traffic hadn't returned. Maybe that would have been the optimal time for a yeah. exploration. But yes, the, that confinement is is not good in, in any way, really. On yeah. Well, weirdly, I quite like getting lost. <laughs> it's it's not something that I particularly worry about. Um, and I started off by saying that my sense of direction wasn't very good. But again, I think that's something that's been, it's a kind of a family myth. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also think this is something that we'll talk about later, that if I am sitting in a car uh, with somebody else driving and my head's somewhere somewhere completely else, I will not have a clue where, where I am. Uh, but if I have to do it myself, I'm, I'm in the driving seat I'm pretty good. But this thing about sort of uh, not minding getting lost, um, I suppose I have never been what you'd call properly lost. Mm -hmm. 
sort of completely unable to find my way. And I, I guess that must be very distressing. Um, and in the book, you do explain how when that happens, panic makes us want to keep on walking when in fact the sensible thing to do is just to stop uh, and stay in one place. Yes. So why do we do that? And what, you know, what happens when we give in to this urge to keep on moving? Usually we get more lost if, if we're in a, right, a right. wilderness place. So it's not a very uh, adaptive behaviour. It's not a behaviour that looks as if it's going to help us survive. But it does seem extremely common among people who get lost, who, who, who have been seriously lost in, in, a, in a way that they think they may not be rescued. Mm-hmm. And that goes for people who, who have been trained in navigation or trained in survival skills wow so even if they know that's not the right thing to do they they might indulge in yes that yeah yes i mean I, I actually while i was researching my book i managed to get lost i mean i wasn't trying to get lost but <laughs> i got um, briefly lost in, in in an area of uh the forest in in northern maine when i was researching a story about a woman who had been lost and actually tragically died and um, for it wasn't much more than a few minutes, but I put down my compass and rucksack and map and GPS and everything, and, and started wandering around this area deep in the woods and lost sight of where I'd left them all. Oh no! And at that stage, I'd spent months researching this subject and spoken to a, a lot of experts, and I um, I did know a lot about mm-hmm. what you were meant to do and how mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. reacted, and I reacted in exactly the same way. Yeah, sort of engulfed by this feeling of panic and started running around uh, in a crazy way. Yeah, you see, I don't think I've ever been sort of adventurous enough to go that far off grid. But we'll get on to more adventurous women um, at some point. Uh, (laughs) Sure, yes, (laughs) we will. Yeah, Uh, but first of all, would you like to tell us what your first object is? Because I think it might shed a bit of light on how your own interest in this particular subject began. Yes, well, I wanted this object to be the Canadian prairies. It's obviously <laughs> stretching uh, stretching the rules a little bit, so I've, I've opted for a map of part of the Canadian prairies. But that, the prairies um, are relevant to me because the sort of perhaps the main theme of my non-fiction writing is about how people are affected by their surroundings, both mm. social and, and physical surroundings. And uh, I spent several months on the Canadian prairies when I was researching my first book, which was uh, social history about how that area was settled by Europeans after the American Civil War, mm. and more particularly about the journey of an ancestor of mine who was an explorer mm-hmm. and who spent a couple of years in that area. And, and I was following his, his route, and it really struck me just from people I met there how that very harsh environment where you have long bitterly cold winters and very short summers how that has affected people's mentality and mm. outlook on the world um, and so that experience was was quite formative for me. So what is that like there what is the 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 climate and the lighting uh, like in that area? So it's very flat, the, there's immense horizons on all sides. And I was following this, this old 
trail which the early settlers, European settlers, had used mm-hmm. and, and from 150 years previously. And that getting close to that trail involved following railway lines more, more than roads across the landscape. So it was very still and, and, and quiet. And I was there just as the country was coming out of winter into spring. So right. it was a kind of great relaxing, in a way, the ice was melting Migratory birds were coming in. Yeah. But I just had this, this constant sense of just the huge scale yes. of, of the landscape. And that has a profound, well, it had a profound effect on, on me, you know, just a little person walking across it. Yeah. It's, that's so interesting what you've said about the, the immense horizons and the, the light changing and so on. Because I used, well, I still have this theory that, um, this is a very big generalization, but there's a sort of general difference in American poetry or that the lines are much longer and looser. Um, the lines on the page. Lines on the page, yeah. So lines, each line in a poem are much longer than they are in sort of UK poetry. And I had this idea that these big sort of open landscapes and the immensity of the sky and so on um had an effect on that how fascinating it's a great yeah yeah i really think there may be something in it and now of course we've started copying uh, the americans and to some extent to a far less extent they've copied us so it's a bit more mixed up but um i do think it affects uh, how you how you write um I'm just looking now at your map of the prairies and some of the names are fantastic. Uh, I'm looking at a place called Smiley, yes. uh, <laughs> Plenty. And then you've written in, so is it Jackfish Lake? Yes, Jackfish Lake was was marked by my ancestor, my great-great-grandfather, whose journey I, I was following. And, and oh. so there, there were a few places yeah which which I had to sort of um sort of guess really sort of where they were um, and so some of those names have persisted for for a long time, but others I think have emerged more recently and yeah. often relate to the experience of of the settlers of the of the of those farmers so plenty i I didn't go through plenty, but maybe that related to an area of particular fertility I'm just guessing here but uh, often, yes, often names yeah. are have a very close link to the yes to the actual experience yeah or or or, or the sort of nature of, of the place of the, the features place. of the place yeah, yeah. so yeah. we've also got buffalo and a uh, swift current that's well, fa- fairly straightforward yes and, and of, of course in, in the 1860s there would have been great herds of buffalo roaming over yeah over those plains and yeah it, it was the europeans who who actually got rid of those um, yeah. by over, overshooting them yeah um, that that was another way in which the indigenous people suffered uh, because that's what they relied on right yeah 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 uh there's one called primate as well which is mm. uh which interests me i can't guess how that could have come about but um your, yeah your poet's yeah. eyes is uh good at picking these out <laughs> <laughs> very interesting names we've got some strange ones in the southwest as well mm-hmm. So I guess that ties up with a theme that you've returned to in your writing again and again about um, human behaviour. 
uh, and that interaction with the landscape. And you talk in your book about our reliance these days on sat-nav mm-hmm. and, uh, and GPS systems in general and how that reliance can actually have quite a pernicious effect on our brains because it can cause those parts of the brain that are needed for navigation, like the hippocampus, which I only know a very tiny bit about. Is it shaped like a horse? Yeah, like a, like a, like a seahorse. Seahorse, right. A long, long body, yeah. yeah. So it can cause that to sort of atrophy from not being used. Uh, is there anything that we could be doing to prevent that? And if so, what, what would it be? Yes, I mean, there's always a danger of overstating that. But I, I don't, I don't want to sort of appear like a, a technophobe or, or, or anything because SatNav ha- has helped people immensely and yeah. is incredibly useful. And the effect on the brain is just that when we use, say, um, SatNav to to get from one place to another, and we rely on the sort of full-on SatNav experience, barking out instructions we don't have to think about where we're going, then the navigation part of the brain in the hippocampus is is silent. So we're not using mm-hmm. that, those skills, those, those networks. Mm-hmm. And it's not a case that they atrophy and, and never come back. It's just like any, anything involving a part of the brain. If we don't use it, then the brain uh, diverts its resources to somewhere else. And mm-hmm. so I think... It depends how you use it. There are ways of using sat-nav that mean you have to pay some attention to, mm. what, to where you are. Um, but and it, it all depends on, on what we want. If you want to go through, through life and you're not worried about that connection with your surroundings and you're not worried about losing your way, then um, you have no incentive not to use sat-nav. But if you are worried about retaining that sort of map in your brain, if you like, or, or the capacity to constantly mm. exercise that map, then it's a good idea sometimes just to turn that technology off and exercise that part of the brain and and, mm. and your attention skills. Yeah, in some ways, it's it, it's an aesthetic thing more more than a cognitive thing because if you have to pay attention to the world around you, which you do if you want to remember the route you're taking, then it does make you more aware of things, and it certainly allows you to remember. Mm. that experience remember the the feeling of of moving through the world and and also Mm. remembering what what you've seen and if you don't exercise your brain in that way then you definitely will not have those memories and you won't have that experience Mm. for some people Mm. that doesn't matter but for others it it very much does matter but it's as much as an aesthetic experience as a Mm. uh, as a cognitive one yeah, aesthetic and also I, I'm wondering if it has a connection, I'm sure it must do, with um, mental health and, you know, depression, anxiety. Um, if you don't have that connection with your surroundings, I'm sure that, well, both ways, I'm sure that could deepen mental states like depression. Um, but also when you are depressed, you may feel far less inclined to uh, engage with your surroundings do you think there's there's something in that yes I, I do and that is what happens when you have depression or anxiety people tend to to look inward very much mm, and mm. stop reaching out to the world beyond themselves and that 
seems to be a symptom. But you know, the question is, I suppose, is is it a way that could help you step out of that state if you were to sort of try and reconnect mm. to to reach out to the world beyond? Well, you, you do you do suggest in the book that it it might well be. And that, you know, strengthening those connections in the brain that do deal with um, what we're calling wayfinding, you know, might be protective against not just things like depression, but cognitive decline um, and may help to offset dementia. Yes, I mean, that part is quite speculative. Yeah. And the connection really is that people who develop dementia, particularly Alzheimer's, one of the very first effects of those illnesses is the atrophying of the spatial cells in the hippocampus that help us navigate. So people who are going through that in the early stages, they report feeling lost at yeah. one of the fir- very first symptoms or, or at least somehow dissociated from their surroundings or not remembering where they are, even in places that they know well. That There are a couple of neuroscientists who are exploring the idea that if you maintain those those neural networks in your healthy adulthood, whether that acts as some kind of um, defence against dementia, but there's absolutely no evidence longitudinally, Mm. I mean, over people's lifetime, whether that can have an effect. But it is being explored anyway by by some Mm. scientists. It it does ring true with, um, you know, some of my own uh, observations, I guess. Um, Mm -hmm. My mother-in-law at the moment is uh, suffering from dementia and uh, is now in a care home. And um, the other day she had wandered into a different room and I don't think she knew she was in that other room. But just lots of little things that she said um, suggest that she is lost. And she asks actually quite a lot, where am I? Does she? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But, I mean, that's that's interesting because... And there's a metaphor there, being lost in the in the wild, uh, mm. being cut off from the world that you know is, is as we've been discussing, is a terrifying, terrifying experience. And it's probably the same the same feeling mm. that mm. people with dementia, your mother-in-law, might be experiencing. I mean, just that feeling of of loss, not knowing where you are, even if you're in a room that should be familiar to you. That's going to be equally mm. terrifying there's something really important mm. to human beings of having a, a, a connection with physical place that you're in or it seems that way yeah I found that quite moving in your book your sort of your clear empathy with Alzheimer's sufferers actually she has um vascular dementia and you talk about the way that that desire to wonder is a way of kind of managing this shifting sense of space you say something about nursing home design yes i mean there are there are ways to design places that help people who have problems with their orientation Hmm. there are guidelines in fact but but most care homes don't follow them and so a lot of the corridors Mm -hmm. look the same the rooms look the same what you really want to help people is difference. So you want different pictures or, or a bunch of flowers in, a, in one place. And yes. if, if everything looks the same, then the brain sort of ends up thinking that you are in the same place, even if you aren't. And so you, variety is yes. and sort of a richness, really, to the 
surroundings is the way to help people. Yes. But what, what, what you say about sort of protective ways of um, warding off that decline possibly ties up, I think, with your second object, which I just love, which is connected with someone who, who did just what you are uh, suggesting. Uh, so tell us about this second object, Michael. So the second object is an old photograph of my great aunt when she was eight or nine and my grandmother, who was 10 years older than her. The focus of, of this mm-hmm. picture is, is my great aunt because she was uh, a great inspiration to me. She was born in India uh, and then family were settled in Britain, but she in her early 20s moved to Canada because she had a great distaste for what she perceived to be the sort of backstabbing and gossipy mentality of the social world that Mm. she was growing up in. So she went to find a new life and ended up marrying someone in Canada and becoming a breeder of racehorses and a a very well-known one. Oh, she sounds fabulous. You know, when you when you sent this to me, I assumed that the great aunt was the grown up woman oh. uh, standing next to the donkey, but it's actually the little girl, it's the little girl on the donkey, sitting yeah. on. Yeah, uh, I mean, they were great. Both of them, my grandmother and my great aunt, were, were wonderful people. But I, I picked out mm. my great aunt because she she wasn't a writer, but she mm. I found her quite inspirational because of the way she just went out into the world and she had an extraordinarily adventurous life um, in between mm. her Canadian adventures. She, during the Second World War, she drove ambulances in Berlin towards the end of the, the war. Wow. And previous to that, she was part of an aerial reconnaissance team taking photographs and had to pitch out of an airplane over France at one stage. So <laughs> she was like that all, all her life. And whenever she came back to Britain to visit us, it, it was like a sort of travelling circus. She, things happened when she was <laughs> around. I love people like that, yeah. Her name was, her Crystal, name was Crystal, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Which uh, ties in with that clear-sighted right. uh, sort of look at she, the world. She was, she yeah. was very clear about what she wanted to do and... I stayed with her after my time on the Canadian prairies. I spent some time with her after that. And then when she sadly died, she wasn't feeling well and was eventually diagnosed with, with cancer. Mm-hmm. At that point, at the diagnosis, she decided, well, that, that's it. I don't want to suffer this. And she she passed away very soon after that, you know, which, which was tragic. But at the same time, that was very much her. And I suppose she's an inspiration for, for me mm-hmm. as, as a writer because... I think it's important as a non-fiction writer to get out into into the world and you know touch sides with people and different places and she very very much did mm, that mm. throughout her life yeah well I think that's lovely that you were sort of influenced by this strong inquisitive woman from your past um so in the book you explain the different methods for plotting a journey and you call them egocentric and allocentric. So I've obviously thought about um, what I do and I definitely use uh, landmarks, although they're very often man-made 
landmark. So, you know, the post box or the, the spa shop or uh, things like that. But I do also say, I mean, I guess it's a, it's a mixture for a lot of people, left and right, uh, behind and so on. Yeah. Um, and I guess most people in certainly in this country are, are similar. But you also do talk in the book about, this is so interesting, an Australian Aboriginal language. I don't know how to pronounce this. Gugu, yes. Gugu Misir. I can't pronounce it either. <laughs> We'd have to ask them, I guess. But um, So they use only uh, geographic or cardinal directions like north, east, south and west. So they might say, for instance... A spider is crawling up your southeast leg or something like that. Yes. Um, could you briefly just describe these two different approaches to navigation and say something about uh, Google Yumitha and what effect that language has on the speaker's sense of direction? So the two types of navigation that you were describing, allocentric and egocentric. The main difference is the egocentric. If you navigate that way, then you pay particular attention to how objects relate to you. So if you get to the end of a road and you turn left and then you walk, say, 100 metres and you then turn right at a particular landmark, a post box or something. Mm. That sequence of local landmarks and combinations of left and right, mm. uh, it amounts to a sort of, in a way, a set of instructions, which is extremely effective way of finding finding a way through a place if you can remember those sequences. Mm. The allocentric way is where you take a step back and imagine yourself as part of a wider landscape and you sort of see the place you're moving to as, as a bird would effectively. Mm. So through a bird's eye view and you might pay more attention to landmarks that are very far away, perhaps a, a hill in the, in the distance. Yeah. So you build up a sort of a picture of, of a landscape on a grander scale yeah. and how different areas might fit together. And that can be effective, particularly if you are going to take shortcuts Mm-hmm. between one area and another because in your idea of your of your map you can see how that works mm. uh, with your mental map and that enables you to do that in, in the physical world so the, so most people use a combination of, of those two but the, the indigenous australians we were talking about if you live in a landscape where perhaps there aren't many local distinguishable landmarks and and there are just great distances then those the cardinal directions north, south, east, mm. west, which will help you travel a long way in a particular direction, then that's going to help you more than that local memory sequence. Mm. So so if you grow up in that kind of environment, then you're going to be much more aware of where north is, mm. for mm. example, or where south is. Uh, and so that language will seep into your everyday way that you understand the world. It's quite, it must be quite nuanced, though, because as you were talking, I was thinking, well, my husband, Andrew, is definitely, you know, he uses more of the sort of cardinal way of navigating. He looks up and out a lot more than I do to the wider mm. landscape. And actually, I feel slightly inferior. I feel that that is a better way 
of doing it. But uh, when you were talking about being able to take shortcuts, I think I can probably do that better. So so I probably am using a bit of both. Mm. Um, And the other thing that occurred to me is that the cardinal method um, has fewer words. I mean, so they can't just use north, east, south, west because directions need to be more more nuanced than that. Yes. I mean, if you didn't have a sense of magnetic north or, or you didn't have a compass, yeah, um, then that would be useless. Uh, it's really a question of having a system that is going to apply to your life. I mean, sometimes if that can be aligned with the prevailing winds, for mm, example, mm. You know, the, in, the Inuit traditional way of orientating in the uh, Canadian Arctic, the Inuit people there, they pay particular attention to the shape of the ice flows, mm. which uh, are influenced by the prevailing winds. And they have particular names for these different kinds of winds. So that's they're not so much interested in, in north, south, east, west. They're more interested in the direction of prevailing winds. Yeah. And that's going to yeah. help, help them more. How brilliant, yeah. how brilliant. Well, going back to the language thing, I think uh, your wider interest in language in the book is very clear. And you do point out that many of the metaphors that we use for our emotional states relate, in fact, to location. For example, I was lost and now I'm found. Um, Mm. I feel more grounded now. I'm all at sea. Uh, I feel very at home here uh, and so on. So given your awareness of those sorts of metaphors in our language, people won't be surprised to hear about your third choice of object (laughs) Um, could you tell us what that is and and why you chose it this may sound very dull (laughs) my third object is a dictionary Mm -hmm. but not any old dictionary the merriam-webster's collegiate dictionary which is particularly good at offering alternative descriptions or slightly unexpected ways of describing things. And I find I find it much more useful than a thesaurus if I'm struggling to find an alternative word, mm. um, it, just because of the, the way it's written. So how, how do you use it in that way? So I think it, I, I find it more useful than a thesaurus because it doesn't, well, obviously being a dictionary, it doesn't give you an alternative word, but... It explains, it describes the word, the meaning of the word in, in just a, an interesting way, more interesting than, than most dictionaries. I mean, I, I, could, I could sort of give you an example at random. I've got my copy here. Um, and if I just open it here. Okay, so the word derelict. Yeah. For example, something voluntarily abandoned especially a ship abandoned on the high seas <laughs> i mean you know, that just immediately gives you something else doesn't it yeah it does i, I want to use it for poetry now yeah, yeah. well um and how let me give you an, just let me just give you another one please so open it at a different page leprechaun yeah there we go leprechaun a mischievous elf of irish folklore usually believed to reveal the hiding place of treasure if caught so 
I mean, not that you necessarily <laughs> want an alternative word for leprechaun, but yeah, it it just allows you to think in more creative ways than simply replacing yeah a word. Um, I, I actually got this tip from um, John McPhee, the American non nonfiction oh, really? writer who's yeah. who's just written dozens of books, great books about all kinds of different subjects. Yeah. This is one one of his his tips. So I can't claim to have come up with this myself, but I've just find it incredibly useful. This particular dictionary yeah. uh, is a whole... I, I will be getting hold of a, a copy for sure. Um, on the on the page that we have uh, copied uh, for mm. the, for this podcast, there's a lovely picture of uh, well, it looks like it's pronounced Gila. It's spelled G, isn't it? But I'm not very good yeah. at uh, phonetic um, alphabet. But it might be pronounced Gila monster or Gila monster, um, mm. and it says a large orange and black venomous lizard. And uh, and I love the added information, a related lizard, and the Latin for that is H. Horridum of Mexico. <laughs> who knew? Exactly, who did? Uh, just hope that I never meet one. Quite. So you use the dictionary a fair bit in your own writing? Yeah, yeah, I yeah. do. I do. Um, I find it helpful. It's, it's also a nice distraction, which, as you know, all writers love distractions. Yes, and especially the famous writer's block. Um, that's going to be a thing of the past, I think, if you get hold of a copy of this dictionary. Absolutely. <laughs> and we're not being funded by them, are we? Um, other dictionaries are available. Indeed. Um, now, what about the rest of your writing practice? Are you, uh, are you a lark or an owl? Do you prefer to use a pen or do you write on screen? That sort of thing. Uh, yeah, well, but if I'm out sort of researching a book, um, then I'll use a lot of longhand just in, in a notebook. And But then the actual writing process, yes, on a screen, I'm afraid to say nothing, mm-hmm. nothing uh, particularly fancy about that. But I, I have a, a little writing cabin, which is a converted cow shed just down the river from my cottage. And so that's my daily commute that is very interesting so you live on your own i mean not on your Mm -hmm. own because obviously cecil is is yes but it's still useful for you to go somewhere else to work very very much so yeah Yeah, just even even that six seven minute walk that journey somehow brings me into a different headspace i suppose yeah and and a different physical um, space too different physical space yeah do you have the same no but you're adding grist to my argument that i need (laughs) i need to have this um yes if i if i get a writing grant that is what i will uh, spend it on i think yeah so uh thank you for that (laughs) you're welcome i recommend it Definitely. Um, now, before we let you go, it would be, it'd be fantastic if you could offer us uh, three pieces of advice that you think might be useful to pass on to someone who's interested in writing uh, a non-fiction book or just writing in general. Three, three things that you wish that you had known when you started out, perhaps. Okay. Um, first, I should just say that I would advise anyone to ignore (laughs) 99% (laughs) of the advice they hear because uh, often you hear things like you should always read your writing out loud Mm -hmm. or you know you need to be writing a thousand words a day. I've always had a lot of this and um, found a lot of it not at all useful so 
uh, everyone's different but having yeah and and, and also maybe uh, anxiety making so yes. counterproductive in that way yes i mean i don't think i've ever written a thousand words in a in a day mm. um i'm pretty slow so yeah as as you say it can be anxiety making you're not making those targets but every, everyone has their own speed or, or way but um i guess three little things that uh have been useful to to me personally and um, the first one is learning to be an observer a good observer i mean to listen to people you're interviewing or watching events without prejudice mm. uh not to filter anything through your own perception or your own understanding of the world try to yes you know i'm sure you're good at that as a poet well that is very good advice for interviewers as well of course yeah exactly um and secondly i think you can never have too much information i i, I never start writing and this is different to everybody but i never start writing until i got as much information as i can have about a, a subject or, or a person and just wait mm-hmm. because once you start writing you you start to put your view and spin of things and the more you can delay that i think the better maybe mm. the more the more honest the treatment of the subject yeah so that that's connected i suppose to the first exactly it's connect, yeah. connected yeah. to the first um and thirdly this really applies a lot of non-fiction writers come from journalism which is what i did um, from science journalism mm-hmm. and i have learned that being a journalist particularly a science journalist doesn't help you become a writer mm. because uh, i found that in my journalism a lot of it was about putting information out out there presenting information and magazines whoever you write for they have a particular house style and uh it's really about informing people particularly in science explaining difficult subjects but Mm -hmm. when you come to write books there's a whole lot more that the Mm -hmm. actual Mm. sentence is valuable not just for the information it contains but for the rhythm that just what it's like to read that to read that sentence so Mm. i think it's a whole uh the aesthetics of, of writing is not something you necessarily learn in in journalism well I I certainly didn't so I would like to respond to that by saying that it seems to me that what wayfinding is really about is uh, what it is to be human in this world Uh, and that's exactly what uh, well for me anyway what what poetry is is trying to do too so uh, the human need for in your case, a sense of place and direction. Um, and it, it's a fascinating mix of slightly different disciplines, history, neuroscience and psychology. Um, so, Michael, thank you so much for talking to us about your, your fascinating work. Thank you very much, Julia. I've, I've really enjoyed the conversation and, and I've learned from it. Me too. That was Michael Bond in conversation with Julia Copas. You can find out more about Michael on his website at www.michaelbond.co.uk. And that concludes episode 397, which was recorded and produced by Julia Copas. Coming up in episode 398, Anna Wilson speaks with Carolyn Sanderson 
about wild swimming, the benefits of a child's eye view, and her recent memoir. We hope you'll join us. You've been listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. To subscribe to podcasts and to find out more about the work of the RLF, please visit our website at www.rlf.org.uk. Thanks for listening.